Good evening, everybody. We are about ready to start. So if you can uh, make sure you're in a place where you're comfortable and that you have muted yourself. And tonight uh, we are actually, God willing, going to get into the first chapter of the book. So you might want to have your book ready and a highlighter just in case. And I'm going to close the door here lest we be disturbed. Very happy to welcome all of y'all here tonight and uh, very excited for uh, the things we'll get to talk about tonight. And as usual, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Please bow your heads. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this night. We give you thanks for this month of December and for the observance of the Advent season where we consider the mutual glory of Christ's incarnation and his coming again. We pray that as we unpack the riches of this book tonight, that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, that we might learn, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest from your scriptures, and then understand the truth from your scripture that Lewis is proclaiming in this book. We pray that you would bless our time together, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, very happy to uh, trying to get my video to stay on. Uh, Very happy to be with all of you tonight and uh, appreciate your giving up your time to come be with us in class. And as we move uh, through this, I want us to start with our theme verse from Second Peter, and I would encourage you um, to say that out loud with me. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There are so many wonderful things in this, but particularly since we're in Advent, I wanted to just highlight that last part about becoming partakers of the divine nature. Part of the glory of what God has done in the incarnation is not only that Jesus took on our nature and became fully God and fully man, but also that through Jesus uh, and his death on the cross and his resurrection, we are made partakers in the divine nature as well. And there is great joy and wonder in that. So just a reminder for uh, those who have been around and uh, an introduction for those who are new tonight. There are a couple of different ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which means you just show up when you feel like it. You can read or not read, as the case may be. Uh, Whatever floats your boat is fine. Uh, You don't have to do any extra anything. uh, And that's great. We're delighted to have you. Or you can snorkel where you find things that are interesting that we're talking about, and you might want to do a little bit of a deeper dive with some of the resources uh, that we provide. Or if you're scuba diving, you can go down the rabbit hole with me on all of these 
things that I find to be really interesting that are maybe not everyone's cup of tea, but they will give you a fuller and richer experience. If you are uh, listening to the class, either uh, through Zoom or on the podcast, I want to encourage you to get on the email list if you are not. If you didn't receive an email uh, about the class, uh, please go to St. Philip's Charleston uh, on the web. You can just Google St. Philip's Charleston and our website will come up. And just send us a message asking us to add you to the list for this class. Um, the email will have links to past classes and also links for resources and other things that you may find uh, to be interesting, especially if you're scuba diving. Um, a couple of reminders also, uh, particularly for those who are new, uh, the best way I believe to approach this book is to read it out loud. This book was originally broadcast talks one chapter at a time, and it reads much better if you read it aloud. The worst thing you can do, which of course is what I did the first time I read this book when I was a teenager, is to sit down and read the whole book at one sitting. It will make your head explode. So please don't do that. It's got way too many deep ideas that need to be chewed on and thought about. Uh, I also want to encourage the C.S. Lewis Doodle. Um, that's a great YouTube channel uh, that will help you uh, appreciate and understand some of what Lewis is up to. And I'll try to remember to send the link uh, to that in the email this next time. So um, for tonight's music, uh, we're going to have something that's a little bit different. And I want to make sure everybody's muted so you can hear this. I'm going to play uh, maybe a little bit longer selection than usual. Uh, but if you think you recognize what it is, uh, you can send me a chat or you can uh, tell us later on. So let me see if I can get this going here. It's going to start off quiet and get louder. Okay, so that was probably enough of that. I hope you could hear at least a little bit of it. 
And uh, I don't know if anyone was able to tell what that was. Uh, people who are members of St. Philip's might possibly have recognized that. I'm not at the moment seeing anything, so I'm just going to give it away. Uh, it is what is called the Advent Matins Responsory for the first Sunday of Advent. Now, that's quite a mouthful. And you may think, well, what does that have to do with anything? So let me tell you what it has to do with anything. Uh, Lewis, as you may know, when he became a Christian uh, late and later in life, in his early 30s, one of the things that he began to do was to go to chapel at the college at Oxford where he lived and was a uh, don teaching classes and tutoring. And that chapel was an Anglican chapel, as are all the chapels at Oxford at that time period. And the chapel that he went to uh, at Maudlin College was a high Anglican chapel that really emphasized the liturgical year, all the different seasons of the church. And Lewis became a big fan of the rhythm of the seasons of the liturgy. And he particularly loved Advent and Lent. And you will also remember that Lewis was a medievalist. That was his main field as a scholar. And what we were just listening to is one of the oldest forms of worship, particularly in England. We know that it dates back at least to 900. And it is a um, choral call and response that comes from what's called the Serum Rite, which is from uh, what's now Salisbury Cathedral. And the words to it, uh, which you probably couldn't pick out, it starts off and it says, I look from afar and lo, I see the power of God coming and a cloud covering the whole earth. And then the cantor comes in and says, go ye out to meet him and say, and the choir sings, tell us, art thou he that should come to reign over thy people Israel? And then when a child soloist sings this part, high and low, rich and poor, one with another. And the choir comes back and says, go ye out to meet him and say, and the child sings, hear, O thou shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a sheep. And the choir comes back and says, tell us, art thou he that should come? And of course, it's all about Jesus's coming and Advent is the season of preparation for that. And Lewis loved the Serum Rite. Um, it is uh, one of the oldest liturgical rites uh, in existence, and there are pieces of it that are still used today. So that was the music for tonight. Uh, just a quick review of context of where we've been before we move forward. We talked about the fact that this whole book is deeply connected with England in wartime, that it was written uh, to be broadcast talks in the darkest days of World War II during the Blitz. Lewis is literally going through bombs uh, dropping on London to get to the BBC studio to do the recording of the sessions. Uh, it is a very frightening time that many people thought was the end of the world. So the BBC decided that they wanted to do something to inspire hope and they asked Lewis to talk about the Christian faith. We talked about the Reverend James Jimmy Welch, who was head of religious broadcasting, and how his tenacity and willingness to think out the outside the box 
is the reason we have this book. If it hadn't been for Jimmy Welch, these talks would have been given by uh, a clergyman who probably was not very gifted, and it would have been long ago forgotten. We also talked about Lewis's ministry to the Royal Air Force and how important that was in teaching him how to communicate effectively uh, with people who were not uh, effete Oxford scholars and students. And his ability to speak to the man in the street really developed from those talks for the RAF. We've talked about both prefaces, uh, the 1942 preface, which is such a beautiful work where Lewis sets out what he is about, but he does it in such a self-deprecating and winsome manner that it's quite remarkable. You'll remember the first sentence is this. It's not because I'm anybody in particular that I've been asked to tell you what Christians believe. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's a very winsome preface, and there's no moralizing or judging. There's very much the sense of being a fellow seeker, uh, one beggar helping another beggar to find bread. And then the 1952 preface, the one that became uh, part of the published book when it was all gathered together and publishes the book today, uh, that is uh, a preface that's all about unpacking the meaning of mere Christianity, of what it is that Lewis is trying to describe, which is the beliefs held by all Christians across the ages, not things that are particular to any creed or denomination, but the things that are in common. And we're going to do a little bit of review of the end of that and a little bit of a review about mere Christianity. Uh, that title comes from the work of Richard Baxter, who is a greatly underappreciated, uh, prominent Anglican theologian of the 17th century. And I love this quotation, which is where Lewis got the title from. I am a Christian, a mere Christian of no other religion. And the church that I am of is the Christian church and hath been visible wherever the Christian religion and church hath been visible. But must you know what sect or party I am of? I am against all sects and dividing parties. He's so interested and enthusiastic about the core of the Christian faith and trying to draw people to that. So at the end of the preface, and we talked a little bit about this last time, uh, and I want to spend a little bit more time before moving on. At the end, Lewis says that he wants to make sure that people understand that mere Christianity, what he's talking about in this book, is not being given as an alternative to other types of Christianity. And uh, this quotation in italics, it is more like a hall out of which doors open into several rooms. If I can bring anyone into that hall, I shall have done what I attempted. But it is in the rooms, not in the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. The hall is a place to wait in, a place from which to try the various doors, not a place to live in. For that purpose, the worst of the rooms, whichever that may be, is, I think, preferable. So what Lewis is getting at here is that being a Christian means being part of the body of Christ. All through the New Testament, you see that when people are converted through the gospel of Jesus Christ, they immediately become one with the body of Christ in their town. And they are together every day. This idea that you could 
hear the gospel, convert to Christianity, and then just kind of go off on your own is absolutely unknown in the New Testament and unknown for much of Christian history. And I would suggest to you that part of the issue that we have, particularly in 21st century American Christianity, is that a lot of people are in the hall and have not gone to the rooms. They have the idea of what Christianity is. They may have intellectual belief in it, but they have not opened the door into one of the rooms. And the rooms are where the truth and beauty and fellowship are. The fires and chairs and meals, as Lewis puts it. The place where we experience deep connection, where we're able to share our burdens, to bear each other's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so it's a great reminder um, of what many of us are missing during this pandemic, of being able to be deeply involved in the body of Christ. Lewis, when he himself converted to Christianity, became deeply involved in the body of Christ. He got involved in the Christian community at his college. He started going to his parish church faithfully every week uh, for the rest of his life. He also started a mentoring relationship with a priest uh, at the uh, Brotherhood of St. John there in Oxford. So Uh, He jumped in with both feet. And what he's saying is that this is something that is really, really important. And then toward the end, he says, in plain language, the question should never be, do I like that kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness here? Does my conscience move me toward this? Is my reluctance to knock at this door due to my pride or my mere taste? or my personal dislike of this particular doorkeeper. And what Lewis is saying here is that we need to engage our mind, our heart, our strength in figuring out which body, which church family we want to belong to, but that we cannot linger in the hall. And then he has this beautiful conclusion to the preface where he says, when you have reached your own room, be kind to those who have chosen different doors, and to those who are still in the hall. If they are wrong, they need your prayers all the more. And if they are your enemies, then you are under orders to pray for them. That is one of the rules common to the whole house. And this is a beautiful recounting of exactly what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And part of what Lewis is getting at here is that there was a lot of prejudice Uh, about denominations in England during the 20th century, and certainly before that. And we continue to see religious uh, hatred, uh, as we talked about last week, uh, among people who hold different doctrinal positions on things. But as Lewis is saying here, we need to pray for those who differ from us, that we're under orders to pray for them, and that we are to be kind to them. That is one of the rules common to the whole house. And remember, he's talking about the church as one big house that has different rooms going off that hall. It's a reminder that we all need each other. We are one body and the Holy Spirit connects us. We feel the presence of Christ in each person who knows him and that binds us together in a beautiful and mystical way. So moving on to... Uh, The next part of the book, 
The way that mere Christianity is organized is in three big sections. And within each section, there are chapters. So the first section is where we're going to begin tonight. And again, there were some questions about what in the world should be used as the title. And so C.S. Lewis, James Welch, and Eric Fenn of the BBC spent a lot of energy and time in 1941 before the first broadcast talk debating a title for the first series of talks. And part of the reason for this is they realized, since they were doing something totally new, something that had not been done before by the BBC, that they needed to have a good hook to attract listeners. It was not self-evident that people were going to tune in. We sort of take it for granted now because these talks became so famous uh, with millions of people listening, but it certainly could have turned out very differently from that. So they put their heads together and they came up with a whole bunch of different titles, some of which, frankly, I think are really bad. Uh, So we can be grateful uh, that some of those were rejected. Some of the early candidates, the art of being shocked. Hmm. Sounds like something that happens when you put your finger in the socket. Doesn't sound like a great, encouraging Christian witness. Or the second one, these humans, which sounds like it could be anthropology. And then two variations of this third one, inside information, and then inside information, four talks on the meaning of right and wrong. And this last one, inside information, four talks on the meaning of right and wrong, was what they more or less unhappily settled on and submitted to the BBC executives to put in the program guide. But the BBC executives, God bless them, looked at it and thought, that is a really bad idea. And so they immediately sent a memo to Eric Fenn. And you'll remember Eric Fenn was a Presbyterian minister who was Jimmy Welch's assistant at the BBC. He was the Presbyterian uh, that reviewed the content of the talks for Lewis. Uh, so they sent a memo, the executives did, back to Jimmy, to Eric Fenn, asking that the title be revisited, especially in light of wartime. They felt that the title Inside Information was unseemly. Now, unseemly is a good British word that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. It can mean something as small as impolite or not very nice manners. But actually, it meant a lot more than that right here. Uh, They were very worried that this was going to sound like some kind of espionage show. And they didn't want to do anything that sounded like that uh, on the uh, BBC, because the BBC, remember, was already a target uh, for the German air raids. So if they thought that the Germans were going to see a show that was giving out inside information, that that might increase Um, the hazards that they were already experiencing. So they sent them right back to the drawing board, and they did not have a lot of time. But serendipitously, Lewis and Finn were able to meet together in Oxford, and they had a long lunch uh, the week of July 15th, 1941, and they settled on this new title, which I think is absolutely brilliant for a reason that we'll get to in a moment. And that new title was Right and Wrong, a Clue, to the meaning of the universe. 
Now, if you were looking through a program guide, would you rather listen to the art of being shocked, these humans, or right and wrong, a clue to the meaning of the universe? So at least for me, the last one is far more appealing. And I think part of the genius of this title is the word clue. Uh, we all know the board game clue, Colonel Mustard in the library with the wrench or whatever it might be. But clue is something, particularly for the British, who are the uh, the great uh, connoisseurs of the murder mystery and the whodunit and all of that. The idea of clue related to a mystery is almost irresistible. The dictionary definition of clue is a sign or some information that helps you to find the answer to a problem, question, or mystery. Clue implies a quest, a hunt, a search for something worth finding, whether it's a treasure or the real guilty party or whatever it might be. And this clue word uh, combined with the quest about the meaning of the universe, I think is incredibly important. We're so used to hearing this title, but just think about if Lewis had gone in a different direction. There were so many different things he could have used, and I think this one just ended up being absolutely perfect. And it reminds me a little bit of Psalm 8. Now, you'll remember the Psalms are written a couple of thousand years before Christ. Uh, Psalm 8, which is uh, one of the most beautiful psalms about the creation, says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And even though we don't in our urban world today get outside and look up at the stars as much as we should, I think it's pretty difficult, even for 21st century folk, to look up at the stars and not feel a sense of wonder, uh, not only at their beauty, but also to wonder in the sense of the verb about how do we fit in to this beautiful sky? How is the earth related to the stars? How do we as humans on this globe relate to all of this? And it's the universal and ancient question, who are we and how did we and the cosmos come to be. From the beginning of history, this has been the major question of mankind. It's a longing of the human heart. And Lewis plays right into it with this title. Uh, cosmology uh, is a word that you may know. It's the study of origins, not to be confused with cosmetology, uh, which is hair and makeup. Cosmology is the study of origins, um, not just by scientists, but by theologians and philosophers as well. And metaphysical cosmology, and don't be scared by all those big words, metaphysical cosmology simply means the place of humans in the universe in relationship to all other entities. And Lewis was fascinated by this. You'll remember that one of his three uh, summa cum laude degrees from Oxford was in philosophy. And his first job was replacing his professor of philosophy uh, while the professor did a gig in the U.S. for a year, the year right after Lewis had graduated. So he was no slouch as a philosopher, and he loved metaphysical cosmology. Uh, you will also know, if you've been in our other classes, that Lewis loved ancient writers. And there's this great quotation from Marcus Aurelius, 
uh, someone who ought to be studied more than he is, one of the great Roman emperors, but also a great philosopher. Listen to what he wrote in 170 AD. He who does not know what the world is does not know where he is. And he who does not know for what purpose the world exists does not know who he is, nor what the world is. That is a statement worth contemplating. And there's deep truth in it and truth that is uh, the same that the scriptures tell us. That when we don't understand the revelation of the creation that God has placed all around us and we don't understand who we are uh, in relationship to God and to other people, we fall far short of what God has made us to be. So notice that this is where Lewis chooses to begin his apologetic, his defense of the Christian faith, his invitation to come and see what is it that Christians believe. He begins with this right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. He doesn't start with evidence about Jesus, although there's plenty of it. He doesn't start with a discussion, a comparative analysis of other faiths, but he starts with the universal quest and hunger for meaning and for purpose. And I think that this deliberate choice of a starting point is a stroke of genius And it helps account for this book's enduring popularity and relevance, uh, which all of that is exacerbated by education shifting focus. So let me explain a little bit about what I mean here. Part of the reason that uh, people start reading this book is because they get hooked early on when Lewis starts talking about meaning and purpose and right and wrong. Those are concepts that everyone can relate to. Atheist, agnostic, Hindu, Jewish, Muslim, whatever religion you might be, these are all parts of the universal human experience. And Lewis is tapping into that. And he does it very deliberately. And I think for most people, uh, one of the biggest questions of life is what am I here for? What's my meaning? What's my purpose? What difference does my life make? And we are seeing right now in our culture, and particularly in the United States and Canada and Western Europe, a crisis of meaning, a crisis, particularly for younger people who have no idea what their meaning or their purpose is. They believe that they are their own creator rather than God being their creator. And there's an enormous amount of pressure to be valuable. And many of them feel that they're not valuable. And the result of that is these diseases of despair, the huge suicide and addiction rates among younger people. And part of this, I think, needs to be laid at the foot of the education establishment. And the reason for that is that it used to be, uh, going back to the 1950s was probably the last time this was thoroughly true, uh, but really even into the 60s, at least a little bit, Most people thought that the point, or at least a major point, of education was to equip you to lead a life of meaning and purpose, that you would learn what it means to be human, that you would think about what morality is, that you would think about what is true, that you would think about what are the pillars on which to build your life, what values really matter as a human being. And 
these were the reasons that liberal art schools came into being and why they had general ed requirements where you used to have to take things like philosophy and literature and logic and religion. But over the years, there's been an, an increasing focus on training people for jobs and leaving out all of these, uh, what a lot of educators now call soft courses, the ones where you actually talked about meaning and purpose. And the problem with that is we now have a whole generation that doesn't even have the vocabulary to talk about this, but they hunger for it. Uh, there's all sorts of psychological research out there that people are hungering for meaning and for purpose, for belonging, for a sense of identity. And Lewis taps into that with the way that he starts this book. So looking at the outline for the first part of the book, just imagine if you knew nothing about Lewis or about this book, and you picked this up and saw these chapter heads, I think it would at least possibly intrigue you. So right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe, the law of human nature, some objections. Now that's a pretty radical thing. You don't find many authors wanting to raise objections uh, to the things that they're talking about and deal with them. So that bespeaks Lewis's honesty here. And then third, the reality of the law, what lies behind the law, and then we have cause to be uneasy. Well, that is an unsettling thing. I think those are great titles, and I think that that's part of what helps draw people in to this book. So we're going to uh, crank into chapter one, and we'll see how far we get tonight. So he starts off with the first chapter, The Law of Human Nature. And he begins with something that is universally relatable, which is quarreling. Quarreling and what people say. Anybody that hasn't been living under a rock for their entire life has experienced this. And if you live in a family, you've really experienced it. Uh, it is something that is part and parcel of the human condition. And it's probably the last place that you, if you're expecting some sort of typical religious Bible banging book, the last thing that you would expect is for him to start off talking about quarreling. But it's something that is universal and relatable. And he has a lot of great examples. He talks about somebody who steals your place in line or steals your seat or breaks in the grocery line or the gas line, whatever it might be. All those things that for all of us, no matter how deeply spiritual we may think we are, we become inflamed with anger when people do that. And Lewis knew that. And so he uses several examples uh, the I was here first, and then he says the whole thing, if, if you promise something to someone and then you don't get it, uh, that whole, come on, you promised. Or uh, he talks about sharing an orange. I shared some of mine with you. Now you share some of yours with me. That's only fair. Uh, and he says, this is a universal human experience. And we see it going on all around us every single day. And he takes a step back to say this is actually quite remarkable. He says one of the things that's interesting is not merely that the behavior doesn't please you, but you're appealing to some sort of standard. And people don't say to hell with your standard, or they don't say there is no standard. They think 
that there is this implicit rule of fairness. So Lewis says that this is very odd, that there seems to be a standard of behavior which is generally agreed upon that's appealed to. And most people don't dismiss the standard at all. Instead, they find ways to weasel out of it. They either say that what they did doesn't really go against the standard, or they have an excuse about why there's an exception that should be made for them. He puts it this way. They might, of course, fight like animals, but they could not quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. That is really important. There would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are, just as there would be no sense in saying that a footballer had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. And part of what Lewis is going to get at is this whole idea of right and wrong is deeply planted in the human race, much more deeply than we might think it is. Our culture uh, battles a little bit about this, but Lewis, I think, is going to make a pretty compelling argument here about why this is true. And what he says, I think, about quarreling is absolutely right. It means that you're trying to show that the other person is wrong and that you are right. That's sort of the whole purpose of the law and courts and justice and all of that. Uh, but it plays out in microcosm with every three-year-old that's arguing over a toy. So the third point he makes is that the law of nature and the law of human nature are different things. He says humans are subject to multiple natural laws, and they are subject to them in such a way that they have no choice about obeying them. But there's one law, only one, that they are free to disobey, which is the law of human nature. And he cites a couple of examples. He says the law of gravity, the laws of chemistry, the laws of heredity. I might like to go up to the top of St. Philip's steeple and say, I am going to fly off of that steeple and fly over to the top of St. Michael's steeple. That would be really cool. And I'd have a great view. But the problem with that is it's impossible because the law of gravity, as soon as I jumped off the top of the steeple, I would come crashing down into Church Street and be killed. Not because I wanted that to happen, but because the laws of gravity are inexorable. You can't escape them. You have to obey them. It's part of what it means to be on this planet. The same thing is true with the laws of chemistry. If you combine flame and gasoline, you are going to have an explosion. No matter where you are, it doesn't matter if you are in a lab where you want that to happen or if you're in your backyard where you don't want it to happen, or somewhere else, it's going to happen because that's what things do. These elements, these laws are inescapable. Heredity is the same way. I might really wish that I were tall and thin and blonde, but given my heritage, there's no chance that that could happen. 
the laws of heredity are inexorable. So as Lewis says, we and animals are inexorably subject to all of these natural laws. We cannot avoid them. We didn't choose, we didn't ask whether we wanted to be subject to them. We just are. But the interesting thing is that humans, unlike the rest of the animal kingdom and the rest of creation, have this law of human nature that we can choose to obey or not. And he's going to unpack that more as we go along. So the fourth point, the idea of decent behavior is obvious to all because right is a real thing. Now, this is very important. This is under assault in our culture uh, through relativism. Relativism wants to say there's not uh, true right and wrong. But I think that experience bears uh, an opposite witness. And uh, one of the other things that's interesting is any philosophy department worth its salt, uh, regardless of whether it's Christian, uh, can put relativism out to pasture in about 10 minutes of arguing. So Lewis puts it this way, what was the sense in saying the enemy were in the wrong unless right is a real thing, which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced? Remember, this is right in the middle of World War II, where word of Nazi atrocities is in the news every day. So if they didn't know that what they did was wrong, as Lewis says, if they had no notion of what we mean by right, then though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than for the color of their hair. This is a really important point, that right is a real thing, and that if you believe that everyone has a sense of right and wrong, then there is such a thing as good behavior and bad behavior. And no matter how much you militate against that or want to argue about it, it's still true. So the next point he makes is that morality and moral teaching are remarkably consistent across ages and civilizations. Now, this is an idea that's under assault as well. Uh, it is uh, not unusual today, particularly in academia, to hear people say that there is no moral system, there's no civilization that's better than another, and that it is evil uh, to impose our values on other cultures. Now, the interesting and inconsistent thing about that is those same people uh, will immediately come back and tell us what's wrong with our civilization in the past that we didn't realize at the time that we need to uh, feel guilty about now. Uh, so they're still appealing to that standard. But one of the things that's interesting about Lewis here is that he really knew what he was talking about. Lewis, while he was an atheist, did a in an in-depth survey of the moral teachings across every civilization and religion that exists. And there's a fascinating appendix in his book called The Abolition of Man, where he goes through everyone from the ancient Egyptians and Babylonians to the Hindus, the Chinese, the Greeks, the Romans, the Christians, and compares their morality and moral teaching. So he puts it this way in the book. I know that some people say that the idea of a law of nature or decent behavior known to all men 
is unsound because different civilizations in different ages have had quite different moralities. But this is not true. There have been differences between their moralities, but these have never amounted to anything like a total difference. If anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of, say, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will really strike him will be how very like they are to each other and to our own. Some of the evidence for this I've put together in the appendix of another book called The Abolition of Man. And he uses a number of examples to prove his point. He says there's no culture in which it is valued as a good thing to uh, be afraid and battle and to run away. Cowardice is universally condemned. Selfishness is pretty much universally condemned. Promiscuity is universally condemned. You may have religions or civilizations where you could have more than one wife, but never has there been one where there was the idea that you could just randomly have anyone you wanted at any time you wanted. And Lewis makes a very compelling argument in this book. For those of you that are scuba diving, Abolition of Man is one of great, Lewis's greatest philosophical works. Um, this appendix, I think, is a very important uh, work of philosophy uh, that we would do well uh, to refamiliarize ourselves with. Uh, another thing that's interesting about the abolition of man is uh, the dystopian book, uh, That Hideous Strength, which is the last of Lewis's space trilogy, is the fictionalized version of the philosophy that Lewis expounds in the abolition of man. So if you're scuba diving, I'll put some links in the email about that. His next point, those who say they do not believe in a real right and wrong will nevertheless appeal to a standard of fairness if things do not go their way. He puts it this way, but the most remarkable thing is this. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining it's not fair before you can say Jack Robinson. And there's a lot of truth to this. We see uh, what we've come to call the double standard in this, uh, where people will say they don't believe in right and wrong, or they want to abandon traditional morality. But as soon as you step on something that they think is one of their rights, um, they will get very upset and demand to be treated fairly. Uh, the next point. Right and wrong are no, matter, no more matters of taste or opinion than the multiplication tables, yet no one is successfully and consistently keeping the law of nature. Now, I know some of you are breaking out in hives, hearing multiplication tables, and thinking about math class and algebra and all sorts of horrible things. But just be calm. It's okay. He's just using that as an example of something that never changes. Two times two always equals four. It doesn't matter how you feel or what temperature it is outside or what country you're in, or if it was 3,000 years ago, two times two always equals four. And Lewis says right and wrong are like that. They are like the multiplication table. The core of what's right and what's wrong does not change 
across civilization and across time. And the interesting thing is that you have this standard, but no one, no one in the church or out of the church in any culture or civilization or religion, no one is successful consistently in keeping this law of nature. And I love the way that Lewis puts this. He says, I am not preaching and heaven knows I do not pretend to be better than anyone else. I am only trying to call attention to a fact. The fact that this year or this month or more likely this very day, we have failed to practice ourselves the kind of behavior we expect from other people. There may be all sorts of excuses for us. That time you were so unfair to the children was when you were very tired. That slightly shady business about the money, the one you've almost forgotten, came when you were very hard up. And what you promised to do for old so-and-so and have never done, well, you never would have promised if you had known how frightfully busy you were going to be. And as for your behavior to your wife or husband or sister or brother, if I knew just how irritating they could be, I would not wonder at it. And who the dickens am I anyway? I am just the same. Now, if you're like me, you feel uh, that you have been caught out reading that. And it is the truth that all of us experience these emotions, uh, places that we fall short and we expect other people to treat us in a way that we don't consistently treat them. And it is uh, just a mark of our fallen nature. But one of the beautiful things about this is look at Lewis's disarming honesty and humility here, as well as his deep understanding of human nature and conscience. He puts himself in the same boat with all his readers. There is no superiority. There's no moralizing. There's no getting up on his high horse and judging others. He says, I am just the same. And he says, I don't pretend to be any better than anyone else. He just says, this is a fact that we fail to practice the kind of behavior we expect from other people. And that, even if you can't agree on the fullness of what's right and what's wrong, I think you would be hard pressed to find people that wouldn't agree with that statement. We have failed to practice ourselves the kind of behavior we expect from other people. So we have failed to practice that kind of behavior. And when we do not keep the law of nature, we immediately begin to come up with self-justificatory excuses. Anybody that's got a preteen or a teenager knows all about this. They never do anything wrong. It was always someone else's fault, the teacher, their friends, or most especially their parents. And it is interesting that many of us don't ever grow out of that. Uh, We're miserable at our job because our boss is such a jerk or the company is so unfair. Um, All of these kinds of things, we come up with these excuses. And Lewis puts it this way. The question at the moment is not whether they are good excuses. The point is that they are one more proof of how deeply, whether we like it or not, we believe in the law of nature. If we do not believe in decent behavior, why should we be so anxious to make excuses for not having behaved decently? 
The truth is, we believe in decency so much, we feel the rule or law pressing on us so, that we cannot bear to face the fact that we are breaking it. And consequently, we try to shift the responsibility. For you notice that it is only for our bad behavior that we find all these explanations. It has often been said that the rarest words spoken out loud and the hardest words to speak out loud in the human language are, I am sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. Instead, we want to blame the other person and think that we are white as snow and those other people have just been bad and taken advantage of us. But what Lewis says here is that we believe this law so strongly that immediately all of the rationalizations and excuses spring to our minds without our actively even having to try to think of them. It's so wired in us. Uh, We feel this rule and this law pressing on us. So he sums up with two points. Humans know the law of nature or the law of decent behavior, and they break it. And this is the way he puts it. It is only our bad temper that we put down to being tired or worried or hungry. We put our good temper down to ourselves because we're so great. Right? So these are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. They know the law of nature, they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. So I would commend to you to go back and reread, think about, highlight sentences that really strike you, because as Lewis says, these two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. And he's going to build off of these facts as we go through this book. Now, I want to just point out something. Um, We went through this, and you may have thought, this is a little abstract. This maybe is a little philosophical. But what I want to point out is that this chapter is really short. It is really short. And Lewis has done, in this matter of a couple of pages, what it usually takes a philosophy professor an entire book to do. And if you want to get an idea of how much of a genius Lewis is in his writing, I would encourage you to try to, if you've just got time on your hands, go through, pick a paragraph out of this and try to paraphrase it. And I defy you to paraphrase it in anything like as brief a way Uh, that's clear as Lewis is able to accomplish. It is absolutely breathtaking when you start unpacking it. So uh, I am now a believer in the miraculous because I didn't think we would ever get all the way through this chapter uh, tonight. (laughs) So we, we have done it, which is a great thing. So let me move us to our last quotation and uh, you will see that there's some little echoes of some of what we talked about tonight. Let's say this together. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death 
death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end, submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let me close us with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this first chapter. We thank you for this law of human nature, that as your scriptures say, that you have planted within our hearts that we cannot escape. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see this reality and this truth, and that you would use that as a foundation for us for clear thinking about the meaning and purpose of the universe, the meaning and purpose of our lives, and most especially our meaning and purpose in relationship with you, Lord Jesus. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we have uh, just a minute where if you would like to uh, pause, pose some questions, um, that would be great. And uh, I'm happy to take those. We can do that through raising your hand or if you want to uh, send a chat, that is fine as well. It's also perfectly fine if you don't have questions. Um, that is great. Um, questions or comments, either one, are welcome. Um, I see that we do have a great uh, observation from Jack Cahill about Aquinas loving objections, and that is absolutely true. And Lewis had done a lot of study of Aquinas, and that might be part of what influenced him there. So, Miss M, did you have a question? Uh, you're going to have to unmute yourself. There should be a little microphone symbol somewhere that you can see. Sorry. There you now, go. Now, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Um, in the journal the other day, um, there was this wonderful article about Walter Hooper. Yes. Who was determined to save every single thing that C.S. Lewis ever wrote. But what got me was that he sent, some, he sent his secretary to get two his two favorite books. And one of them was the Aeneid. Yes. <laughs> I thought that was absolutely fascinating. That that was one of the things that he wanted to have. Yes, yes absolutely. And uh, that article that she's mentioning about uh, Walter Hooper is an important one. Um, Walter Hooper actually is very ill right now and may be about to leave this world. Uh, but he was Lewis's secretary at the end of his life and uh, one of the executors of the literary estate. And it's largely because of him that we have so many of these works of Lewis. Uh, but Part of what Hooper realized was Lewis was really through and through uh, what, and Lewis called himself this, a dinosaur. Um, he loved 
the old books. And one of my favorite quotations uh, is Lewis talking about one afternoon he was reading and he was reading the Hippolytus of Euripides in Greek. This is when he was in his late 20s and struggling uh, about whether to become a Christian. And the whole idea of the longing that came through that book um, connected with his theological longing. So yes, you're absolutely right. That love for classics uh, is part and parcel of Lewis's life. And um, part of the reason that in his preface for uh, Athanasius's book on the incarnation, let me just give a book plug. I know Athanasius, that sounds like a frightening thing to read um, on the incarnation written in the fifth century, but it is great. It's not that long if you take it in little chunks and it's a great book for Advent because we don't understand the wonder of the incarnation. So I would encourage you to check that out. But the preface of that book is called On Reading Old Books. So uh, it'll motivate you about that. Well, um, one other thing, going back to the hall, going back to the hall and the various rooms uh, that you could enter, I wonder how much of that, you know, we think about to the difficulty we've been in recently with the Episcopal Church. Right. And there we are. Um, we are supposed to love. It says once you, if someone chooses something else, you're supposed to, uh, you know, respect them and admire them or whatever. But, but it's been very interesting to have that happen at this point. Yes, definitely. And that's one of the challenges is when there are real issues and real issues of what constitutes the Christian faith, um, that's when the rubber hits the road about all of that. But no matter where we are in that, we are enjoined by Jesus to pray for those who differ from us and to be kind to them. It's not too easy. No, it's not. All right, I see some more. Thank you. That was great. Some more good questions. Uh, what do you think Lewis would make of postmoderns who even question the normal functioning of language? That is a great question. And I can say Lewis would have plenty to say about that. And in fact, we talked a little bit about this last week uh, when Lewis was unpacking uh, the word Christian and comparing it to what had happened uh, with the word gentleman, mm -hmm. that the word gentleman used to mean something very specific, someone who was landed and had a coat of arms. And to say that someone was not a gentleman was not an insult. It was just a statement of fact. But that over the years, that was eroded. And in The Abolition of Man, Lewis talks about this uh, messing with language is one of the most dangerous things that humans can do. And it's interesting that in That Hideous Strength, the fictional treatment of that book, uh, the NICE, which is such a great name, the N-I-C-E, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, part of their mission is to undo language. It is the Tower of Babel all over again. And uh, that is actually where uh, Lewis takes the title from That Hideous Strength, uh, from the Tower of Babel. So great question. I think Lewis would have plenty to say. And I think it's an area where Christians 
need to uh, beef up our intellectual muscles to be able to engage better with the world about language. And uh, another great question relating to that same thing, um, the abolition of man, when did he write it and why? Um, Lewis wrote the abolition of man, I believe, uh, in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And what spurred him to write it was a revision that was going on in the English curriculum that was being taught in many schools in England. And he was very, very upset about it because it was introducing relativism and trying to do away with the idea of absolute truth. And he said that if we were to do that, if we were to fully engage relativism and lose the idea of truth, we were going to be in serious trouble that it didn't seem like a big deal to just have this one educational book coming out. But he said that if the education system goes south, then we will lose the whole culture. And uh, I think we can see around us that he was very prophetic and prescient about that. Uh, The Abolition of Man is not the easiest of Lewis's books to read, but it is one that uh, if you are scuba diving, I really would recommend uh, to wrestle with and chew on uh, because there is a lot of deep truth in there uh, that is something our culture desperately needs to hear. So another great question, if Lewis proposed that everyone had a moral conscience, what would Lewis say about Hitler, that he thought what he was doing was fair and right? Um, Lewis would have said that his belief would be that the Germans, including Hitler, uh, at some level knew that what they were doing was wrong, that it was evil, and that the only way to not have that sense is to be somebody who's clinically diagnosed as a sociopath, which uh, Hitler might have been. Uh, But Lewis would say that everyone has that sense of right and wrong, and that even though these rules and things that happened in Nazi Germany were enacted by popular vote, many of them, um, that that still doesn't make it right because This rule in the heart, this conscience uh, of knowing right and wrong is something that is common to all people except for the occasional deranged person who is a sociopath. (laughs) Yeah, so these are very good, thoughtful questions. Thank you for those. Um, I think we are going to wrap up. I don't want to keep you for too long, uh, but just to give you uh, a couple of little tidbits about things before we go. Some of you that were with us in the Screwtape Letters class will remember that we talked a lot about a terrific book called The Common Rule uh, by Justin Early that's about habits. And uh, there is a terrific resource on the internet that I'll put in the email uh, on the Common Rule website where they have a Common Rule Advent section. And I just want to commend to you the observance of the season of Advent Uh, in the Anglican and Catholic and Lutheran worlds. That's a big thing, not so much in some other denominations, but it is an ancient observance in the Christian faith. And it is something that if we will engage, it will increase our sense of wonder. So uh, I commend that to you. That will be coming along in the email. Uh, I also want to commend to you 
uh, that Advent carol service that I sent out on Lewis's birthday on Sunday. Uh, it is truly, truly uh, beautiful and full of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I promise you that if you block an hour and 15 minutes uh, to listen to it, especially if you can get it onto a big screen with big speakers, if you feel like you don't know how to do that, find a teenager who can help you. Uh, but it is it will be a blessing to you. So I would encourage you to do that. Thank you so much for being here tonight. It's a joy to be with y'all. We will have class next week and the week after that. Um, December 23rd, we will go on break for two weeks, and then we will come back. But I'll put all that in the email as well. So thanks for being here. God bless you, and uh, Advent blessings to you. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Yes. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for all your work. Thank you. You are so welcome. It's a great joy. Love you. Thank you. Thank you.